Welcome to another episode of Artistry, where art meets industry. We are your hosts, Rochelle Etienne Robinson and Stan Substantial Robinson. Hello, this is part two of Meet the Host, and our guest this week is co-host Stan Substantial Robinson. So you have a very interesting story as far as how you got into Suitland High School. Suitland High School, for those that do not know, is a magnet school, art and design school uh, located in Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, tell us about that story. Yeah, so first off, shout out to uh, my oldest friend, uh, Jamal Gowdy. Um, if it wasn't for him, uh, I definitely would not have gotten into Suitland High School. Um, I just happened to be staying the night uh, over his place for the weekend with uh, him and his folks. And um, uh, his mom then uh, took us out on Saturday and said that before we went to the movies or whatever we did, um, that he had to go audition to get into Suitland. Um, so he gathered his belongings, his uh, portfolio and all of that stuff. And uh, I didn't know at the time what Suitland High School was. I had never heard of the school, didn't know about their art program. And um, so, yeah, he proceeded to go through the process. I went um, on the, the tour of the, um, the VPA program with him. And um, and then I proceeded to sit in a waiting area and just draw like I would do any other time I had uh, free time. And so I just was drawing in a sketchbook. And one of the teachers um, saw what I was working on and was basically impressed. Um, and then they asked me if um, I was there to audition uh, for the program. And I told her flat out, I was like, lady, I don't even know what this place is. I'm just waiting on my friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, so then she realized that I was with uh, Jamal and his mom. She spoke to his mom. His mom then called my mom. And uh, yeah, they figured out how I could test on the spot. And um, so I proceeded to go into this room and draw for like an hour plus um, and uh, answer some questions on the back of the uh, the drawing. Um, it was a still life drawing. And then I was proceeded. Uh, then I, that was followed by an interview with um, uh, Miss Doty, I believe it was Miss Surratt and maybe Miss uh, Mrs. Kaneshiro. Um And yeah. And so then it was done. And that was maybe late fall, uh, early winter or something like that. And was Jamal also applying for the visual arts program? Yeah. Yeah. We were there for the same program. And, um, well, he was there for the program. I was just tagging along and then it turned into an interview for me. Um, summertime comes, I'm out in Kentucky. Uh, and then my mom calls uh, my sister Lisa and says, Hey, uh, Stan, you got to come home early. Uh, because if you want to, um, try to get on the football team for Suitland, um, trial start next week. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, Suitland. And she was like, yeah, you got in. I was like, wow. And keep in mind, you hear what my mom said. She wasn't even talking to me about the art program. She was like, I know he want to play football. So, um, so yeah, so I came home, called Jamal. The second I got home was like, bro, we're going to be going to school together. And that's when he told me he didn't get in. And it was like, yo, my heart dropped because I felt the initial feeling was like I took it away from him. Right. Um, but then, you know, as I gotten older, like, you know, you start to think about like what your path is. Right. Like and what what opportunities are coming for you, partly because this is the journey you're supposed to go on. Right. And um, and so, yeah, man. But that school 
um, that school changed my life. You know, um, I likely would not have met you had I not gone to that school because that school prepared me to to get into Pratt Institute um, and where I met you and so on and so forth. So it changed the trajectory of my life. Like, I, I don't know where I would be without that program. And did you and did Jamal ever talk about that? Um, I, I don't, no I don't think. Yeah, no, nah, we ne- man. Look, <laughs> Jamal came to the homecoming with me. That's where he met uh, his girlfriend for a period of time. So like, yeah, we were still hanging out, man, like forever. When I went to when I ended up going to Pratt, uh, he was a part of the, the group of friends that drove up to drop me off. Right. Um, and we we still in touch to this day. You know, what I mean, sometimes we fall off for a period of time, but um that's you know that's special in itself that um i think a lot of people uh a lot of your average person i think would have held that against um their friend you know what i mean um and i never felt like he ever held that over my head i don't know if he ever felt the way he never expressed it to me um but um and i never asked either so um but yeah that's kind of how it happened I always love that hearing that story because it's just so amazing to me how how that happened, and um, not that there should be any animosity mm-hmm. because he very much that whole process he's a part of your process. It sure. kind of reminds me of that movie that we saw um, about the wrestling family. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you remember that part where he's like, "Some people are supposed to be teachers." I mean, you could explain it better than. Yeah, he. Um... Uh, I forget the exact line that um, Jason Vaughn says, but uh, but he basically was telling the guy, like, you know, you're you're not necessarily the star. You're the star maker. Right. And like um, and and basically he knew that he was that guy because he himself was that guy. Oh, yeah. And, Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Character. Vince yeah. Vaughn. Not yeah. Jason Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, like uh, I think. I think there's power in that, too. Or like some people, instead of star makers, they call them king makers. Right. Like um, those people are absolutely uh, needed. Like, you know, that's what teachers do for the most part. Like a great teacher is making great leaders out of people who have potential and oftentimes don't um, don't necessarily, you know, if they're not guided in the right direction, don't live up to it. And so you're lucky if you have people in your corner who see that potential or um, share opportunities with you, even though it means they may potentially not get the opportunity because you're there. And I mean, and I feel like that leads to the work we do now, right? Like, um, you know, yeah, we've seen some success as individual artists as well and together as a company, but the reality of it is we take the information we gather and we ultimately, um, some of it we apply to ourselves and a lot of it we just share out. And some of these things we're ultimately competing with some of our clients for the same opportunity, so to speak. Right. But um, but like we 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 um, we rejoice in their success um, because their success is our success, because we want, I think, um, you know, any good natured person um, wants not just they don't want to just do well um, themselves. They want to see the people they care about in their community do well and thrive, too. Absolutely. So Pratt Institute, mm-hmm. how did that come about? Have you had you heard of Pratt before nope. applying? OK, <laughs> not at all. Um, you know, I just happened to go to a, a, a art high school, a performing arts high school, and they knew about all of the the colleges that were like the top schools for visual art and design. And so um, 
And so they gave uh, they provided us with different information. Um, and then similar to you, and I'm pretty sure you went to the same place I went to uh, for your portfolio review, which oh, was at, Micah. Well, no, mine was at Corcoran. Oh, OK. Yeah. All right. So you didn't have to travel as far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had to go to Baltimore. Uh, shout out to be more. And um, I was up at Micah and um, and I met with a bunch of different schools and stuff, um, including Micah Parsons. Uh, I think Rizzy was there. Uh, a lot of folks were there. And I went to Pratt and and similar, you know, like people were telling me I needed to work on my portfolio a bit more, maybe have a bit more. Um, what's it called? Um, uh, I needed more figure drawing in mind. Right. And uh, that was like the thing I kept hearing over and over again. And then people were telling me that I, um, my SAT scores were pretty good, but my um, but my grades overall were just a little bit above average. You know what I mean? But they weren't they weren't I wasn't as impressive on paper. And so they were like, yo, you're a solid artist, but you kind of need to work on these areas, too. Um, but Pratt Pratt offered money um, and so did Corcoran um, as well. Uh, and I had looked at a bunch of different schools, but everywhere, every school, because I was doing music too. every school that I looked at, I researched um, through through hip hop. Like I researched like what their music scene was like, what type of art, a music, uh, musical artists were they producing? Um, and I knew I wanted to be somewhere where I could basically pursue both, um, you know, so I could be there for my art. But at the same time, when I'm not doing that, I could be in these nightclubs and these ciphers uh, and these studios and. <laughs> you know, get on all the work I could, you know what I mean? So had you been to New York before? Uh, my first time going to New York was through honors course. We went to go see what's that, Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we performed. We performed at some uh, some conference thing or whatever. We competed. And I think we I can't remember if we won or we got second place. We we did our thing. We was nice. Um, and then. Uh, yeah, that was my first time going. We were really close. I know we went to the pier or whatever pier twenty one. That is, what's that pier across the you know near the Manhattan Bridge? Anyway, we went there and all of that. That was my first time going, and then uh, and then later visiting um, Pratt with the homie Reggie. Um, that was my second time. And so, how was that experience when you finally um, ventured into Brooklyn? Right. You know, get settled with your dorm, your roommate. Yeah. Yeah, it was dope because my roommate was somebody I had known since sixth grade. So that that made living in New York by yourself a bit easier because there were people that I knew um, because I went to a performing arts high school. So like there were people I knew from high school who were in New York, whether they were at our school or they were at a different school. Um, So I never really fully felt alone. Um and then, you know, and then I started to meet people in the music scene um, through friends at school and us going to the Brooklyn Tea Party and um, and then eventually checking out New Eurekan and all of these different places uh, over the years. And, um, yeah, it was just it was it was surreal. It was dope to be able to see so many things that you had seen on TV. Right. Like um, to be able to see it in person. Um, you know, I was an 18 year old kid, like just kind of. You know, you feel like you're living in a dream. And then um, as a music head, like all of these uh, street corners and stuff that I heard in rap songs or whatever, like a million. Like I <laughs> like I felt like I knew all these places, even though it was my first time seeing it. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, it was just a surreal experience. So you mentioned about some of the venues that you've um, 
performed in. Uh, some of them were historical sites too. Like, mm-hmm. didn't you? Had you been at CBGBs or Bowery and um, you know end of the week as well? Mm-hmm. What other places do you recall? Um, I remember Wetlands. Wetlands, like all the venues you named, were amazing. Of course, um, SOBs as well. Um, you know, just a lot of like you know the, these were historical places, and then a lot of times when I would go to perform. Um, you know, hip hop royalty just walk in any given night. You know what I mean? Like I remember being online to get in the new Eureka and most Def just popped up like and just jo- jumped in the cypher. Like <laughs> it's like, um, you know, we beatbox in one second and this dude just come in and black out real quick and then just dip into the night. Like <laughs> and then uh, I forget what the actor name is, but the brother from um, uh, what's the, uh, the Wire? Um, oh, my God. Uh, Barksdale. Right. Like uh, I remember a homie who uh, played him being out front of uh, the Brooklyn Tea Party uh, outside of the YWCA in the cypher. And then to see this dude, I've seen him in how many movies and he's just sitting there rocking with us, just nodding his head in approval. And then as quick as I finish, he jump in with bars <laughs> like I'm like, yeah, I know you can rap. Um, but, yeah, it was just surreal, man. Stuff like that would happen all the time like seeing like the bush babies brothers um from the bush babies or whatever jumping in ciphers with them um meeting pumpkin head rest in peace um ph for the first time um after having like some of his stuff on vinyl and then him uh like showing love to like me and other up-and-coming artists and kind of showing us the way you know what i mean so um yeah man it's just you just constantly felt like you were a part of history um you know what I mean? Like you were like kind of like another uh, you were just a, a part of these great moments. And now looking back, like when I see documentaries about that time, like when we watch um, uh, hip hop evolution and then literally seeing us in it. Right. Like seeing clips, uh, seeing our faces in that and like that documentary freestyle and all of that. Um, it just kind of confirmed what I already felt, which was we were witnessing history. Not only being a witness, but a participant. Yeah, definitely. And so two years into college, you receive an interesting phone call, which many can say changed the trajectory mm-hmm. of your career. Right. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, yeah. So initially I thought it was a crank call. I thought, um, uh, you know, I thought... Uh, it was a prank of some sort, like uh, one of the homies was calling and doing like an impression <laughs> of someone. But uh, but yeah, it ended up being the brother um, Nujibes. Um and uh, he rest in peace to him. He um, had got my contact information through um, our friend Tomo, uh, who also rapped um, and went to college with us, um, went to Pratt Institute with us. And uh, Tomo was from Japan originally. So um, we were hanging out. We went in the studio together. Shout out to our, our boy, um, Bisco Smith, um, who also rapped and DJ and we would all hang out and, um, we just exchanged, exchanged information before he went back to Japan and while he was working at a record store, um, he basically, um, he basically, uh, was asked by Nujibes or, or Jun, he was asked by Jun if, um, he knew of any dope rappers in New York. And so the fact that, I mean, he knew plenty of rappers, but the fact that he mentioned me was just a huge honor in itself because um, he could have easily plugged anybody else. But he was like, yo, you should check out my man, Stan. And um, yeah, from there, uh, Nujibus got my contact information from him. And then he gave me a call 
Uh, I was super tired coming home from work. I had a, a job that was pretty rough <laughs> on you. I was doing landscaping work. Um, you remember. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I really didn't feel like playing on the phone. So I thought it was a joke. Um, but he was basically, you know, it was a really thick accent um, that was kind of off putting initially. But uh, he told me, he was like, yo, I own a record label. I heard some of your stuff on a mixtape and it was really dope. I would like to hear more stuff if you have it. And if I like what I hear, I want to um, sign you to a record deal and fly you to Japan to record with me. And um, and that's a lot. Like <laughs> That's I mean, yeah, like when you when you work in a, you know, pretty crappy job. You know what I mean? And and then all of a sudden someone hits you up like, yo, you want to come to Japan and record an album? You know, and and it wasn't like I wasn't doing anything because at the time uh, I was uh, submitted. I submitted a demo to um, Def Jam and had been talking to um, DJ Enough, uh, whose cousin is with a friend of ours. Um, and so, you know, I was entertaining certain opportunities and that wasn't the first time I had even talked to a major at that point. I was like maybe like the third or fourth conversation of that nature I had had. At that point in time. So when he called, it was very different because it was going it was an independent label um, that was just starting up. And that was still very much a it's not that that type of stuff wasn't happening. It just wasn't the norm. Right. It was, indie labels weren't fully the norm yet. Right. Um, but they were starting to become a thing because of like Raucous and other companies. And so, yeah, man, it just, you know, it worked out. And um, I decided uh, to, to sign with him, especially because uh, things ended up not panning out with uh, Def Jam, which was for the best. And, um, yeah, I, w- I signed up with the brother, went out there for a month um, and recorded a full album. And the rest is history, as they say. And so from that experience, you um, were able to travel to Japan by yourself. Mm-hmm. Didn't know what he looked like. Didn't know what he looked like. This is granted. It is a very different time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were exchanging emails, but I uploaded a picture of myself and I had asked for a picture of him, but he never sent it. <laughs> Nujabas didn't like doing a lot of interviews or taking pictures. So, <laughs> so there's that. But I really was going there blind. And right. I, and yes. I had, what, like $33.22. cents. <laughs> I remember to this day, that's all I had. And I was about to be there for a month. That's all the money I had. Yeah. So it was a lot of, a lot of trust, a lot of trust, leap of faith. You know, they, what do they say? All like, you know, I was betting on myself. I, you know, I believe that I had a good feeling and I just went with it. You know what I mean? So since then mm-hmm. you've been to, you've traveled to Japan several times, mm-hmm. um, both, um, with Nujibes as well as, you know, on your own, right. um, performing your own or creating your own tours, mm-hmm. um, collaborating with other artists. Mm-hmm. You've been to how many countries? Uh, maybe around 20, like I think just under 20 or somewhere around there. And mainly independently, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Most of the time, um, I mean, there were times where I was touring with other people. Uh, shout out to Cunning Linguist. Uh, you know, that was my first time experiencing Europe was touring with them. Second time I went to Europe was, you know, we um, I did have a booking agent, but largely about half that tour, um, my, uh, me and Marcus D booked ourselves. 
Um, and then like he kind of uh, the booking agent had helped us plug in a few dates here and there. And Marcus D is um, producer for Bop Alloy. Bop yep. Alloy. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, a good amount of the places that I've been, uh, they were opportunities that um, I kind of was able to get uh, through different connections I had made over the years. Um, it wasn't necessarily like one major company that just kind of blessed me with all of these opportunities. I just happened to build a, a good network of folks who um, knew I was somebody they could rely on when it came to doing certain things. Um, and they believed in my talent and me as a person. So they would give me certain opportunities. So sometimes it'd be friends calling in, uh, you know, um, making opportunities happen and involving me. And then other times it would be, you know, conversations that I'd have with certain people. And then I'd be like, well, hey, could we explore this? And they'd be like, sure, let's go, you know. Um, part of your allure, right, is that not only do you, um, perform, you write your own rhymes, but you also create the visual art Mm -hmm. for your, um, for your albums. Right. Can you walk us through like that process? Like, are you doing, you're doing album covers, you're, you're doing the graphic design, like. Walk mm-hmm. us through that whole process. Yeah. Um, most of the time, like whether we're talking music or art, it kind of starts with the the title, right? Like I, ha- I come up with a title for the album most of the time before I write a single song um, because I like having a theme, right? Um, and so I would say I, I can't remember... Maybe with my first album, I can't remember whether or not I already had a title before I made those songs um, or if it was something that I kind of came up with during the process. I think that's the only exception that that first album. But most of the time I had a concept before I recorded a single song, before I made a single piece of art. And um, and then a lot of times after coming up with that, that initial idea, that that um, that title. Um, I start seeing like, you know, I start getting visions of what the artwork could be. Um, a lot of times that happens sometimes before the 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 music happens. And then sometimes the, the music starts to happen quickly. It, it varies. Um, but I think one of the hardest part uh, parts for me um, in terms of being a graphic designer is uh, oftentimes I get, um, you know, I get blessed with the opportunity to work with clients um, and unfortunately, sometimes they don't have an idea. They don't have a vision. They have a title and they have like the music recorded and they're just like, here, listen, what do you think? What should the cover be? And and that's really not how I work. <laughs> so those designing, those are probably some of my least impressive pieces of art because I'm, I'm kind of reaching into the the void, so to speak, right? Like there's nothing, like there's nothing to work with. Um, that music, I don't necessarily listen to music and start to get visuals, right? Like the visuals kind of come to me first and then the music is produced, right? Um, so yeah, it's funny. I don't think I've ever really processed it until this moment right now, but that's usually how it works for me. Like I, I, I can, see the cover sometimes i see videos i see like i have ideas for all of these visual things because i'm a visual artist first um and um and it just kind of builds from there so it's sometimes very difficult for me to design for other people but um 
but I think it makes when you experience my music, when you see the cover art, when you see all of these different things, I feel like it's a fuller experience um, or it's not to take anything away from anyone else. But I feel like you're getting much more from me because I'm doing these things top to bottom than you may get from other places. Less of a huge production involving, you know, all of these people and not to say those things aren't great because they can be. But I feel like you're getting a really clear vision of how I see myself and how I want to be represented in the world because it's coming almost mostly from me uh, most of the time. How many albums? How many um, solo albums? Uh, (laughs) um, Albums as far as studio albums, um, four vocal albums, one instrumental album. Um, But that doesn't include um, compilations I put together of like, tracks that were cut from other projects and it doesn't include like mixtapes and things like that. Right. Um, Let's talk about your um, production as far as um, you've now most recently with um, the garden mm-hmm. you have um, began producing, but that wasn't your, even though this is your first release, mm-hmm. you've been producing for a while. Yeah. Um, I started making beats when I was 15. Yeah, 15. Um, you know, I saved up to get some equipment. Uh, I couldn't afford to get um, a SB1200 or an MPC. Like, you know, I knew those were the weapons of choice for a lot of folks. Um, but I was, you know, I was a hustler. So, like, I mean, I could get money, but within reason. You know what I mean? I was still a kid. So um, I saved up and got a DJ sampler, um, which had like multiple banks. It was a five bank DJ sampler. And then I had a DJ, um, like a mixer. Um, there were two Gemini products that had, um, the mixer had like an eight second sampler. The Gemini, um, sampler had a 12 second, um, sampler and then four, three second ones. And I've basically used, um, I saved up to get the nicest tape deck I could afford. So it would, would have, I was trying to minimize the amount of hissing, right? Like, you know, (laughs) nowadays people are trying to put hissing in their music to make it sound like what we were making back in the day. And so, um, and yeah, and I was just, you know, and I had a bunch of records I collected um, and then rest in peace uh, to Mr. Gowdy, uh, my boy Jamal, uh, Jamal's father, uh, when he passed, he left his record collection to his son. um, And then Jamal, because he knew I was making beats, just let me come through and grab as much vinyl as I could carry, yo. And so, um, yeah, he just, I mean, it was a lot to choose from. So I just picked up a lot of stuff and, um, and I was chopping away, just making beats, uh, at a very young age. Um, but as I got older, start to make different connections in the biz, you start meeting some really talented producers, um, some of which who were already established, you know, IE, um, new Jabez, um, folks like tone deaf, um, my man, no, from, Cunning Linguist, and then later uh, people like Odyssey, you know, Algorithm from the Stuyvesants. Um, the list goes on, you know what I mean? The other guys, all of these different people who were established producers, um, really it made them, made names for themselves as producers and in some cases as vocalists too. And so when you get the opportunity to work with these folks, um, you know that there is some additional attention that gets shined on your project because you're working with these notable people. And so, um, so, you know, and it wasn't always, uh, necessarily a good thing 
to be you weren't always taken as serious if you were making the beats and the rhymes because most of the people who were making beats and rhymes were kind of better at one thing than the other. Um, but you were also um, before, during, and even to this day, you are the designated beatboxer, right? Yeah, I was always <laughs> yo. Oh my god. I felt like at one point in time in New York, I was more known for beatboxing for everybody than like I'd be at a show, the sound there'd be a sound problem, and you know, like uh, the first time I saw um, uh, Plug One, it's, uh, first time I saw uh, Plug One live, um, <laughs> yo, like sound system went out, and um, and uh, or the tables went out, the music went out. And the whole, like, everybody that I knew that was there was like, yo, yo, substantial got beatboxed, stag got beatboxed. Yo, so I started making my way to the ta- stage because it was just my job. Like, if I if someone needed beatboxing, I was there, I was the dude. And, um, but of course, by the, the second I stepped on the stage, the sound came back on. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I used to do a lot of shows with this, um, this, uh, this female duet, uh, um, duo called, um, uh, The Onlyest. Um, two guitar players and stuff and i would do shows with them all the time and i was their beatboxer right um and uh and i remember i had this uh awkward experience at a j rooter damager uh show uh where he was he was having a rough night and um and then he asked if someone uh in the crowd could beatbox and and uh you know uh, my homies was super loud, like, yo, yo, my man Stan got beatboxed. I was like, yo, don't do it, don't do it. He's been having a rough one. I don't know if this is the night. And sure enough, that didn't go well. That did not, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say what happened, but yeah, that didn't go well. But um, but yeah, I was always kind of dealing with production, beats, some way, shape, or form, even when people didn't know it. Um, and then I really got my chops up as a producer, uh, teaching kids how to make beats. Um, and that's why I really kind of mastered the software um, that I was using, which was GarageBand. Um, uh, yeah. And which, so, yeah, I was going to say, which is a great segue, because I was going to ask about um, about education. Because mm-hmm. you as a you've been working with youth. One of the things that I think, um, you know, when you're a working artist, particularly a performing artist, you know, with all the accolades and the awards and opportunities that you've been awarded. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always consistent. Right. And so, you know, a lot of artists have to um, obtain alternative employment. Right. And so one of the things that's been consistent with you, um, I mean, you've been probably working as a youth worker almost as long as you've been doing music, and that's been working with youth. Right. And so talk to us about that i know you've worked in nonprofit. you've also worked in um the public school education system that mm-hmm. you are a product of right uh, can you speak a little bit to that yeah it was um it was never i don't think i ever really planned to be a teacher so to speak or um work in education i knew i wanted to give back to my community in some way shape or form but i didn't know that was going to be the way i did it um and like how it happened, I think it was right after I came back from Japan, um, you know, like it was the word was kind of getting out that like, you know, I was doing different things overseas. And so um, so I was performing somewhere and then a teacher, it, it seemed like no matter, especially when you went to like poetry based um, joints and some of the hip hop events, too, there were always teachers in the crowd. And um, and so I would constantly get invited to come speak at people's schools. 
And so uh, I went to do um, a career day at a, um, a school that was really close to where we lived in Vesta at the time. And um, yeah, as quick as I left, they were like, man, would you be interested uh, in in working with these kids, like maybe doing some programming and stuff. And I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> like, I think the most I had done before that was like I did some poetry workshops through an organization at Pratt uh, with some local kids, you know what I mean? Um, but I didn't, again, I didn't think it was a thing that I'd be doing. Um, but then I ended up doing it and I realized that I liked it. Um, the toughest part was trying to, like balance the whole being cool in yourself with like, you know, being a bit of a like walking that line of like trying to trying to stay true to yourself and be lax about certain things, but then have to be a disciplinarian as well. Right. Um, especially as a young hip hop dude, because we're constantly drawing outside of the lines and <laughs> and just doing what the hell we want to do. And so um so that was a challenge, you know what I mean? Like really kind of stepping into that space. Uh, but um, but it's something that, you know, be- ended up becoming, there were moments in my career where it was the main thing and music was the side thing, even though I knew music always was the thing I wanted to be doing um, the most. Um, but like I just ended up going way further um, in the education than I ever really anticipated, which was a beautiful thing. And lastly, um the birth of Sam, substantial art and music. Oh, um, yes. You know, I think, and we've talked about this in, in, in length, but um, I think that with all your experience, with all your opportunities that you've been offered, and even with your education and your work with youth, how do you feel that how those things, those experiences have prepared you to be an executive yeah, um, I think that, uh, you know, throughout my career as a musician um, and visual artist, you know, I was I was always hungry for knowledge, right? Like for more information, how I'm always asking people how I can get better, right? Like how I can make my music better. Um, I'm, I'm listening when people are offering the advice, even when it, I don't always agree um, I still take it in and consider it. Um, and uh, and then, you know, and like and I was always just kind of looking for a way to kind of uh, take my career up a notch. Right. Like I was always asking those questions. And so I think part of that recognizing that, you know, this is the goal is to be a lifetime learner. Right. Um, I was I was the type of person who was willing to take information uh, put it to the task, you know, um, I mean, you know, just put it to use, uh, trial and error, figure out if it's legit. And then after I worked that out for myself, I share it. Right. And so that's consulting in a nutshell, right? Like is finding these resources, finding certain information, information, researching it, uh, applying what you've learned and then passing it on to clientele or people you uh, think could benefit from it. And so, um, yeah, it's it's been a much easier transition than I anticipated, especially because I kind of took the road less traveled. Right. Like I know about. I'm aware of certain things that have to happen in mainstream music, right, certain things that um, 
you know, certain paths you have to take, certain sacrifices you have to make, certain information that is going to be necessary and what your team needs to look like. I'm aware of that. Um, But what oftentimes those folks aren't aware of is how to navigate this independent world. And and long before Sam ever existed, people were people from major labels were contacting me to have me come in to uh, to pretty much consult. I didn't know it was consulting, but they were asking me to come in and they were picking my brain so they could help an artist that they were working with transition from leaving the major into doing going independent. Because oftentimes there were people who were working at major labels who were looking to leave and start their own thing. And I don't know how many times I sat in offices at major labels where I'm thinking they're calling me in because they were offering me an opportunity. They were really calling me in because they knew they were about to leave and they were trying to position themselves to better help some artists they were working with. And um, and that's something that happened multiple times. And and, you know, like I know how many times we've gotten a call or been sitting here to get together uh, with our friends um, and then business come up and then we just offer advice. We just. Even when people weren't asking, <laughs> we just were sharing like, look, you, you know what you could do. And um, and I felt like, you know, we were this. This was our destiny. Like we we didn't realize it, but this is what we were preparing ourselves for. And now we're here. I'm loving it. And I think that's a wrap. That's great. It's a wrap, B. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Artistry, where art meets industry. This podcast has been brought to you by Substantial Art and Music. For more information, please visit www.subartmusic.com. You can also follow us on social media at Subart Music. We'll see you soon, but talk to you sooner. Peace.